But we're going to be we're going to continue in our series through the life of David, and we're going to be in Second Samuel chapter chapter eleven uh, this evening. And this is not a text I've been looking forward to pre- be preaching by any stretch. This is a text where the the entire life of David shifts. It is a tragic text, but it's here to be a warning to us. And I pray that the Lord will use that in that way tonight. So let's begin reading the the Word of God, 2 Samuel chapter number 11, verse number 1. The Bible says, And it came to pass after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. And it came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. From the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. And David sent and inquired after the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba? the son of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And David sent messengers and took her, and she came in unto him, and he lay with her, for she was purified from her uncleanness. She returned unto her house. And the woman conceived and sent and told David, and said, I am with child. Notice that nowhere in that text is David describing David's action to describe, did it use Bathsheba's name? She, woman, because sin degrades people. It is, it is destructive, it is vile, it is degrading. The Bible's in that, he said, and David's in a situation now. He says, she's with child. Verse number six, David said to Joab saying, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David, and when, you, and when Uriah was come unto him, David demanded of him how Joab did, and how the people did, and how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, Go down to thy house and wash thy feet. And Uriah departed from the king's house, and there followed him a, a mess of meat from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and went not down to his house." And when they had told David, saying, Uriah went not down unto his house, David said unto Uriah, Camest thou not from thy journey? Why then didst thou not go down unto thine house? And Uriah said unto David, The ark in Israel and Judah abide in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I go down, go into mine house and eat and drink to lie with my wife as thou livest, as, my, as thy soul liveth? I will not do this thing. Uriah had more character than David. And David said to Uriah, Tarry here today also, and tomorrow I will let thee depart. So Uriah abode in Jerusalem that day and the morrow. And when David had called him, he did eat and drink before him, and he made him drunk. And at even he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but went not down to his house. And it came to pass in the evening that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. 
And he wrote in the letter saying, Set ye Uriah in the foremost of the hottest battle, and retire ye from him, that he may be smitten and die. And it came to pass when Joab observed the city that he assigned Uriah unto a place where he knew that valiant men were. And the men of the city went out and fought with Joab, and there fell some of the people of the servants of David. And Uriah the Hittite died also. Then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war. And he told him the message there. And verse number 22, the messenger went and came and showed David all that Joab had sent him for. And the messenger said unto David, Surely the men prevailed against us and came out unto us in the field. And we were upon them even unto the entering of the gate. And the shooters shot from off the wall upon thy servants. And some of the king's servants be dead. And thy servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Then David said unto the messenger, Thus shalt thou say unto Joab, Let not this thing displease thee, for the sword devoureth one as well as another. Make thy battle more strong against the city, and overthrow it, and encourage thou him. And when the the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah her husband was dead, she mourned for her husband. When the morning was past, David sent and fetched her into his house. She became his wife and bare him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The title tonight is this, Our Own Worst Enemy. Our Own Worst Enemy. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you. I pray, Lord, that you would guide my lips and tongue as we go through your word. I pray that everything would be said exactly the way it needs to be. I pray that our hearts would be in tune with your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would warn our hearts, Lord, that we would take the admonition of your word, that you would bring conviction, Lord, that you would bring challenges where it needs to be. And I pray, Lord, that we would not just simply take your word lightly or just, but Lord, that you would speak to our hearts, Lord, and that we would consider the truths of it in our own lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Through Just to get the context, just to get a little bit, we're just going to jump right into it tonight for time's sake. Um, but... As just that we have to understand a little bit what's been leading up to this. If you've been with us the last couple weeks on Wednesday nights, we've seen David showing kindness to Mephibosheth. You remember that, right? He showed uh, the uh, the continuing kindness, the the loving kindness to Mephibosheth, uh, the descendant of Saul. He had showed um, uh, because of Jonathan's sake, because of his promises there. He had sh- uh, given uh, shown great kindness. He had brought him to the king's table. And then David had attempted to show kindness and to continue the peace between Israel and the Ammonites, right? The, the king had been a help to David at the time, uh, and his, he had died, so David sent messengers to the son of the king saying, hey, uh, we're, uh, we still care about you. I'm so sorry this happens. This is our sin- sincerest uh, condolences. So he had attempted to show kindness to that nation. David's kindness 
had been rejected with great hostility. They had taken the messengers, they would cut off half their beards, they had cut their clothes off in half to leave them exposed, to leave them shamed. It, this was a really a declaration of war against Israel. So this, um, what was taking place here in chapter and verse number one where there is a war, this was none of David's doing in, a, in this coming about. Okay, David had been attempting to show kindness uh, to those who were his neighbors. They had spurned that. They had rejected that saying, if you come here anymore, this is what's going to happen to all of you guys. Uh, we don't want you. We don't need you. Stay out of here. Um, leave us alone. And then the Ammonites had called the Syrians in. Hey, how about you come and help us and make sure we keep David? And so there is a, once again, there's a threat against David. David had dealt with most of the threats and had victory, but now there is again opposition mounting against David. And so David had sent Joab and the mighty men who had defeated the Syrians. But the Ammonites had just, when they saw the Syrians were defeated, they had retreated within their city. They had uh, just, they had fled back into their city walls. The Syrians had gotten their armies together and they attacked David again. David gathered all the armies of Israel and soundly defeated the Syrians. But David has not dealt with the Ammonites yet. They had simply retreated within their city walls. They were still a present threat. They were still in a position of um, hostility against David and his kingdom. Uh, so this was something that had to be dealt with. David had dealt with the Syrians, but he has not yet dealt with the Ammonites. He has not yet dealt with the perpetrators of those who had um, attacked his nation, attacked his messengers. Justice had not yet been fulfilled. And so it wasn't David's uh, fault that there was a war going on. It wasn't any of David's initiation, but there is a war that needs to be dealt with. There's a threat that needs to be handled. And it, it, according when spring arrived, okay, there was the year expired, so now this is about the time that David had sent the messengers there in the first place. Uh, when spring arrived, once the rain subsided, the roads were passable again. It was, this was a time if battle was necessary, this is when you went to battle. The weather was uh, cooperating, uh, the, the fields had been planted so the men could come and uh, participate in the battle and, and that nature. And so this was the time when kings were supposed to go to battle. There was a threat that needed to be dealt with. David called all Israel together. He called Joab, who was his general. Who he called the mighty men, who were the, the servants of David there. He got the not only the mighty men, but the entire armies of Israel. He said, Joab, this is something that needs to be dealt with. David was right in dealing with this. He was dealing with it as a king, not at a personal vendetta, but dealing with it as a nation. This, this must be uh, solved. This must be resolved in a, in a way. We're going to deal with this permanently. Go. Now, David had sent the mighty men into battle under Joab many times before. Okay, there was just before when he heard the Syrians were coming down, David had sent Joab and the mighty men, hey, you're the quick strike force. Uh, you're, the, you're the Marines. You're the, you're the Navy SEALs. We're going we're gonna to drop you in there. Deal with this before it becomes bigger. 
Oftentimes when there were raiding parties coming through or there was a strike, that, a preemptive strike that needed to be done, David said, Joab, take the mighty men, go deal with this. That was the standing army. But when there had been a battle with all Israel, the king was supposed to lead them. Okay, it says in the text there, I, no, nothing is in your Bible by accident, when the kings go forth to battle. So David, uh, as the king, he had um, the responsibility of leading and caring for his people. He had the responsibility of making wise decisions and uh, doing what was in the best interest of his people and um, taking care of the people first. But for some reason... David sends Joab and the mighty men and all of Israel. He sends the armies of Israel and the Bible says David tarried still at Jerusalem. Apparently he is taking a time of rest and relaxation for himself. By the way, there is nothing wrong with rest. There's, uh, the Bible, God himself instituted the Sabbath where there is a day of rest because God uh, knows that our body needs rest. It is a time of recuperation. You don't rest. Eventually, your body will rest, because you will get sick, all right? Um, trust me, I tried it in college. That's what happened, okay? Um, there, God's plan is rest, but God's plan is never idleness. David appears, by all appearance, is taking some self-indulgent time. Now you say, Pastor, how did you get that out of the text? Well, it says in verse number 2, it came to pass at even time that David arose off his bed. Okay, even time was as the sun is setting. This is not nighttime. This is not, uh, this is as even, as the day is drawing to a close, David gets up off his bed. I got one major question. You're the king of the nation of Israel. Your armies are in battle. What are you doing in bed during the middle of the day? Is that a good question? Okay. Oh, but no, okay. David has been taking it easy. David has said, I've fought enough. Apparently, I don't believe I'm going any, uh, stepping on the text in any way or um, going too far here because he's getting off his bed in the middle of the day. Okay, when the sun is setting, you're supposed to be getting ready to go to bed at the end of a hard day's work. David's getting up. What am I supposed to do now? David is focusing on enjoying himself as his men are in battle. And as the cool evening breezes start blowing, David goes up to the roof of his house. The scene has been set. Though David considered himself in a place of great safety, in a great place of great ease, I'm in my capital city of Jerusalem. I'm in a place where I can relax and take my break, yet David was in a place of far greater danger than he ever could have imagined. As David walked out on that rooftop and began enjoying it, something that he had never imagined, something he was not seeking. He was faced with a temptation. 
While on the roof, we know the story, one of, really one of the most well-known stories in the Bible. You mention David's name, two things are going to come to mind. David and Goliath, David and Bathsheba. He's on the roof enjoying the evening breeze. Who doesn't like to do that? A nice, warm summer evening. Just enjoy the sunset, enjoy the beauty. He's on the king's house. He's, okay, he's not wrong in necessarily being on the roof other than that's not where he's supposed to be. Just being on the roof in itself wasn't sin. But as he's walking on that roof, he sees a sight that he wasn't supposed to see. There was a woman who was taking a bath. From his vantage point on the higher uh, king's house, he was able to see what he wasn't supposed to see. And his passions were excited. Though David had several wives downstairs in his house, he became curious. He inquired after the woman. He began to seek after that. Right? That's what the word inquired means. He be, he's, who is this woman? I, I'm interested in this. David began making inquiries. David began seeking something based on his passions instead of seeking God. David was focused on what satisfied him instead of on the welfare of his people. The message comes to David. You know who this is. This is Bathsheba. This is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And you go, why, why is that a big deal, wife of Uriah the Hittite? Uriah the Hittite was one of the 30 of the mighty men. Okay, the mighty men numbered several thousand soldiers, but there was the three, there was the next three, and then there was the 30. Uriah was one of the 30. Most, the 30 were those who had come to David at the cave of Abdullam and had been with David all the time that David was on the run from Saul and had spent time with David and had supported David. They had been instrumental in David becoming the king at Hebron. They had protected him. They had been with David at Ziklag. They had been as they had chased down the Amalekites after the battle of Ziklag. And then they had come back and David had become the king at Hebron. And then they had been instrumental in taking Jerusalem. This was someone that David knew personally. Bathsheba was also the granddaughter of Ahithophel. Ahithophel was David's chief counselor. Someone that would have stood beside David at his throne every day. It would have been someone, David would have said, Ahithophel, what do you think about this? It said uh, uh, that counseling at Ahithophel was like talking to God. He was just that wise. He had that much understanding. And Bathsheba was his granddaughter. I don't think this was the first time David had met Bathsheba. Just in, if it's that close of a connection. Now apparently, uh, she is a younger woman. There are no children mentioned, some of that thing. They may have been recently married. But she was someone who was part of David's inner circle. She was someone whose husband was faithfully serving David. She was Uriah's wife. Right there. Something should have been banging on David's head. What are you thinking? 
what, who do you think you are? The law of God says thou shalt not commit adultery. Uh, the penalty of adultery is death under the Old Testament law. Dummy, will you wake up here? The problem is, once you begin following your passions, your brain doesn't really work. Uh, when you begin lit following your own heart, it's impossible to reason with someone. It's proof in and of itself. And David was not deterred from his attentions. He sent messengers. He took Bathsheba. He brought her uh, to his house. And as soon as uh, his affair was done, he sent her home. Lust is not something beautiful. It is destructive. It is dirty. It takes God's gift and picture of marriage and degrades it and turns it into something revolting. And yet, what is our society infatuated with? It's not love, it's lust. You can go to the library and there is sections of books that have nothing to do except cheap novels on lust and sex and immorality and fornication, promoting it as something good, promoting it as something that is to be enjoyed. If you look at the, uh, you should not follow the, the, the culture and what, uh, the, the, if you want to find messed up lives, just look at Hollywood. And yet they are the ones who say, this is what you should desire. You know, and people look at that and say, if I just had that person in my life, everything would be so much better. And yet, look at the stories, and they are some of the most twisted, messed up people that could imagine just the, the vileness that is there because people are living by lusts. By the way, homosexuality and transgenderism, all of it is lust. There's nothing love in it whatsoever. Because lust destroys. Bathsheba returns to her house. It's all over. Nobody's the wiser. Until she discovers that she's pregnant. David is faced with a choice now. What does David do? He continues to seek his own pleasure. He continues to seek to please himself. Because David... Seeks to cover it all up. He's like, well, I'm not going to admit that the man after God's own heart has a wicked heart too. We're just going to act like this never happened. Uh, Joab, send Uriah over here. Uh, we're going to uh, send Uriah home. We're, gonna, you know, we're just going to provide the circumstances that nobody can really say anything. Even my servants can't really tell who the father of the child is. Everything's going to be okay. The only problem was Uriah's character and honor refused to allow him to act as the king expected. Uriah goes, my king, the Ark of the Covenant's in a tent. He started with God. Someone David has totally forgotten about at this point. He goes, king, your soldiers are living in the open field. I can't go home and pretend like everything's fine. In fact, there's um, some 
scholars who would point out this, that often uh, the battles were con- at that time were considered spiritual battles, which they were. This wasn't just a normal battle because this was the nation of God's people, so everything that took place was a spiritual thing. And one of the ways of sanctification was, in that time, was a refraining from even ordinary um, marriage relations saying, I am completely set apart to God. And Uriah saying, I'm set apart to the things of God. I'm in a battle for the name of God. I'm not, I'm keeping myself focused on the main thing. David was seeking, wasn't even seeking after being at the battle or any sort of righteousness. So David makes a second attempt to cover it up. He's desperate to avoid exposure. He's willing to shame his faithful servant to cover up David's sin. He makes Uriah drunk. Trying to say, well, maybe if he's drunk, we can convince him and do something of that. And so David does something he would ordinarily never do. And whether he switches the beverages there or whatever, he gets Uriah drunk. And Uriah drunk had more self-control than David did sober. So David finally resorts to the sure way. He calls on his nephew Joab to aid in the murder of Uriah. Uh, There was nothing, this is premeditated murder. Even though David did not physically have the sword, David was completely responsible for what took place here. Think about this, David had shown kindness, loving kindness to the descendant of Saul. He showed loving kindness to the children of Ammon. And yet when his passions got involved, he couldn't even show loving kindness to those who had been so faithful to him. He sends the message. By the way, he sends it by Uriah's own hand. He knew that Uriah was so faithful he would never open that message as he was carrying his own death warrant to Joab. And Joab was just unscrupulous enough to say, Oh, king, okay, king, we won't talk about it. We'll talk about that one later. Made sure to get Uriah killed, even improved on David's plan. David had said, you know, just get into the battle and then everybody retreat and you leave Uriah there. Joab says, that's not going to work. Everybody's going to know something up, so we've got to make sure a couple people die so it's just by chance. And so Joab really assists King David in this. Be careful who your friends are. If they're not willing to say, if they're not willing to say, what on earth do you think you're doing? No, this is wrong and stand up against you. They're not going to help you much either. And then after the, more, uh, the, the message comes back, Uriah has died. Bathsheba mourns her husband. David says, how about you come and be my wife? Okay, you say, what on earth was that about? Well, number one, he was trying to cover up. But actually, under the Old Testament law, if someone's 
brother passed away and there was no seed, there was no children, the brother would step in and marry the wife to raise up a family after this. And David is saying publicly, Uriah was so much of my friend that I'm going to act like his brother and marry his wife to raise up a seed after him. I'm going to be the, I'm going to be the kinsman redeemer to the man I just murdered. Using the law of God to cover up his deeds. Using the law of God to give himself credibility. Cover up his own treachery. And it seems at this point that David's gotten away with it. Uriah's dead. David and Bathsheba now have a son. Nobody knows. At least nobody's willing to say anything about it. It's all nice and patched up. We might ask, where is God in all of this? Could not have God stepped in and kept Uriah from dying? We don't understand how, how God in his sovereignty works. Could God have done that? Absolutely, but God did not choose to do it. But the Bible does make clear that God knew exactly what was going on. The actual root of the word displeased comes from the Hebrew word for I. And so it, God was watching everything that was going on and it displeased him. It stunk before God. One man put it this way. David's attempt to screen, all of this was David's attempt to screen himself from exposure. And yet, ironically, the incident has become one of the best known in Scripture. Think about all of the effort that David put into covering his tracks and, and hiding everything out. And now it's written down in the Scripture that has been studied and read and preached for the last 4,000 years, or 3,000 years since the life of David. His elaborate cover-up was completely worthless. God knew what was going on the whole time. And as we get into the next chapters, we're going to find this. God does not overlook anything. God is going to deal with this. God is assuring us right here that his judgment is coming. Now, we do need to understand this. This tragedy of character did not change God's promises to David. Okay, remember, his promises were an everlasting covenant. It did not change his promises but David's life and his family will be forever affected and altered because of David's failure to follow God. God recorded not only the successes of David because of God's presence, but the disasters of David without God's presence. Okay? We, we got to remember this. David was a man after God's own heart. David was a man who loved God, who served God with passion and joy. First Kings tells us that David did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord and turned not aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, save only in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. David was a man who loved God, who served God, and yet here there's a failure as terrible as it can get in the life of a man who walked with God. He committed adultery with the wife of his most faithful man. One of his most faithful men. By the way, God still takes sexual sin and sexual perversion very seriously. The Bible says 
1 Corinthians chapter 6, flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth um, is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. Fornication is any sexual relationship outside of marriage. Whether it's before marriage, whether it's in a different marriage, any sexual relations outside of the bounds of a marriage between one man and between one woman, God calls it fornication. First Thessalonians tells us, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. God wants no part of that in the life of his children because he knows how destructive it is. Not only did David commit adultery, he committed murder. David committed a lot worse crimes than Saul had committed. Saul had only attempted murder other than of the priest. He had murdered the priests. But David's committing adultery and murder. We go this. How did a man after God's own heart who had faced Goliath who had kept the right attitude with Saul, who had served the Lord faithfully all these years, how did he get to this point? I mean, you talk about a fall. You talk about a drastic change and destructive choice. How did he get to this point? Because if David is sus- it could fall like this, we are just as susceptible to fall. You see, David made choice after choice that displeased and dishonored God. Dishonored the God he loved. Because David followed his heart instead of his heart following God. He followed his heart instead of his heart following God. It's easy to say, Lord... It's, or excuse me, it's easy to say, David, how could you? When instead we should be looking at David's failures and saying, Lord, help me. If someone could look at these verses and begin to say, I could never. You've already taken the first step to getting where David was. See, our heart is so easily enticed, and temptation will always find us at our weakest moments. But the God who sees all is mercifully warning us of the destruction that comes if we yield to our passions, if we yield to what our heart wants to go. There's there's two things we need to understand from this passage. Number one, we need to understand something that needs to be burned into our heart is the pattern of sin. The pattern of sin. And we may have to come back and hit this, but just we're going we're gonna to try to get through this tonight. James chapter 1, uh, you can write this down, I'm going to read it, you can turn there if you're quickly. Uh, the, par- the, pattern of, the pattern of failure, the pattern of sin has not changed since sin entered into the world. James would write, James chapter 1 verse number 13, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. By the way, this is the same pattern that we see in the Garden of Eden when sin entered into the world. When the woman saw, saw, 
that the tree was good for food and pleasant to the eyes and a tree desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. She saw she was tempted. She desired, she lusted. She took and ate, she sinned. And then she hid, she and her husband sewed figs leaves together to try to hide their nakedness and cover up what had happened because of sin. I need to make a point here. There is temptation everywhere. Temptation is not sin. Just the temptation being around. You can't walk in the grocery store and there's not sexual temptation around whether on the magazine rack, whether around. You can't, and it's not, and though this passage is dealing primarily with sexual temptation, there is different things that each of us struggle with, whether it is anger, whether it is fear, whether it is depression, whether it is doubt and discouragement. There is temptation to turn from God everywhere we go. One man, uh, it's been said this way many times, you cannot stop the bird from flying over your head, but you can make sure it doesn't build a nest in your hair. Okay? There, there is, we live in a sinful world. We live where there is temptation everywhere. What David should have done is returned from the roof without taking a second look. Saying, hey, I don't don't have to see that. That's not my wife. I don't don't need to participate in that. I'm going to go back down. I need to get busy doing something. I I I need to get back to what I'm supposed to be doing. By the way, that's what Joseph did. When Potiphar's wife grabbed a hold of him, he ran. Don't argue with temptation. Don't debate with temptation. Don't reason with temptation. Flee fornication. Get out of there. When there is temptation, when there is the allurements of this world, whether it is a co-worker, whether it is someone around you, don't participate. Don't reason with it. Don't say, oh, I can handle it. Don't say, oh, this is not such a big deal. Because that's the first path, part of sin. There's temptation. It's all around us. We don't, temptation doesn't mean you're too far. Sometimes someone can say, well, I've already done this far, I might as well go all the way. That is a lie straight from Satan. That is a lie straight from the depths of the depravity of your heart. No. When when the temptation is there, flee. Because your heart, even after salvation, is still full of the old man who wants what it wants. Okay, There was temptation. But David sent and inquired after the woman. He was enticed and he sought more information. Okay, Lust is when you desire what you do not have, especially what you should not have. Oh, if I just had that, if I just had that money there, right? David's heart desired this, but he probably already had a pretty good idea who Bathsheba was. And David began to meditate upon the desires. Okay? You are either going to be meditating upon the promises of God and the things of God, or you're going to be meditating on what your heart wants. 
And as you, if you begin allowing your mind to lust, that's what lust is, the desire of that, to dwell on what your heart wants, your heart can convince you of anything. Your heart can convince you that you'll get away with it. Your heart can convince you that you'll never get caught. And if no one else believes your lies, you will. And, when, and you could have said, I will never... Never ever do that, but when you begin to allow lust to work and the enticements to work, your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. It will pull you astray. Mr. Uh, one commentator put it this way, when God forbids something and calls it sin, we shouldn't try to get more information about it. There's a lot of things that we just need to be innocent about. Whether that is sexual sin, whether that's false doctrine. I don't know how many guys who I went to school with or around or people that uh, the professors I went to went to school with going back times and they say, no, they were right on board and they begin to study things and look at things and, well, I just want to learn what they're really talking about. I just want to hear what they're saying and they were following the lust of their own heart instead of following the word of God. If there's something we know that's not in agreement with the Word of God, we don't need any more information about it. We don't need to pursue that. We, if you know that person is not saved, don't seek a relationship with them. If you know that that co-worker is an angry person and a cussing person and someone, don't spend time with them. If, if you know... Um, Come on, if you know that you have a, a, a problem with money or you know you have a problem with anger, don't hang out with people that anger you, right? Uh, don't uh, be... Because excited passions never stop and listen to reason or wisdom. Once you start meditating on that, once you start pursuing that and seeking after that, I could hit you over the head with a ball bat and it wouldn't do you any good. Once you begin pursuing your own heart, you will become blind to the truth of God's word. Someone could have stepped right in David's face at this point and said, David, don't you know that adultery is sin? And it wouldn't have done any good. Because once you begin pursuing your own heart, you're going the opposite direction of God. He began desiring that. Then David took what did not belong to him for his own selfish purposes and pleasure. There is pleasure in sin for a season. There is. You can get away with it for a time. You can think you're having fun. But there's no satisfaction. There's only regret. The blessings of God, you pay for in advance. God prepares you for that. David to be king, there was a lot of steps that David had to go through and a lot of suffering that David had to go to before God says, now you're ready to enjoy my best. Sin you pay for on the installment plan. You have a little bit, you get it now, but you're going to pay for it the rest of your life. He followed his passions. He's followed his appetite. He gave his heart what it was screaming for. David's attempts to cover his sin only led to more sin. 
My dad has said many times, sin comes in six packs. You just can't have one. It brings its friends with it. Well, I can, I can handle this one. No, it's... You neither give place to the devil. Don't let it get a foothold. Sin always brings its friends along. By the way, sin's, David's sin didn't fool anyone. He wasn't getting away with it. Once you start down the path of selfish, pleasing self, there's no telling where you're going to end up. The human heart that is unchecked by God is capable of the most despicable acts in history. When we are not controlled, when we are not reined in by the person of God, there is no telling where you could end up. There's pastors right now who pastored independent Baptist churches who are in prison because of sexual relations with minors. Because of child pornography. Because of stealing funds from the church. And a thousand different things. When you're serving God, you've got a target on your back. You can't hide your sin. It's going, to come, it's going to come and get you. By the way, we know the verse from Proverbs, He that covereth his sin shall not prosper, but whoso confess, confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. You know what that verse also means? Brother Gaddis pointed this out. He that covereth his sin shall not prosper. Not only are they not going to prosper, they're not going to, there's going to be judgment from covering your sin, but you're not going to prosper in covering your sin. Just ask Bill Clinton, right? I mean, there's, there is God, especially his children, okay, especially his children. God's not going to let you get away with anything. You may think that nobody else really knows what's going on, but it stinks to high heavens. And you're not going to cover it up. That's the pattern of sin. Temptation. You don't have to fall for temptation. It's there. But we don't have to go there. I think we don't have... I've got a whole other sermon left. So we're going to have to close it down for tonight. But see, David made choice after choice that displeased and dishonored God. The God he loved. Because David was following his heart instead of making sure his heart was following God. There's a big difference. There's a big difference. Next week we're going to hit, okay, can we get some warnings from God's word? David, David didn't have to end up here. And I believe there are some clear warnings from the text that we would be here till 8.30 if I preach through the rest. And so uh, we'll just make that another sermon uh, uh, next week. And so pray with me on that. But there is, this is written for our admonition. I'm, I'm not pre God didn't write it here because he thinks everyone here is involved in sexual immorality. But he is giving us a warning if it can happen to David it can happen to anyone here. And it doesn't have to be that sin. 
It can be anything that your heart desires. Because if you're seeking after that, instead of seeking God, there is no limit to where the human heart can go when it is unrestrained by the grace of God. Don't trust your heart. You've got to guard your heart. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. The song, Come Thou Fount. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take it, seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. What was so sad was the man who wrote that song at one time was a Baptist pastor. At the end of his life, he was on a stagecoach as someone was talking about that song. He said, oh, what I would give to be where I was when I wrote those words. Because even though he had written a song that we sing and love, he wandered too. Was no longer a preacher. His life was wrecked by sin because he had followed his heart instead of making his heart follow God. Dear Heavenly Father, we just come before you this evening, and Lord, you know each of us and that we love you and that we want to follow you and we want to serve you, and I pray that you'd help us take the warning of your word. Lord, I just pray. Lord, there is hope. Lord, we don't have to fall, and I pray that you would burden our hearts to seek you and stay ever closer to your word. I pray for, Lord, you to bring conviction, you to bring clarity, you to bring passion for you this evening. In Jesus' name we pray. We'll take a moment. If there's something you're struggling with, give it to the Lord right now. Don't continue to seek your own way. Wherever you are on the path, seek the Lord because there is mercy when we seek Him. Let's do some business with the Lord.